West Virginia University is a renowned Research One institution with over 200 graduate and professional programs to choose from. Find more information about how you can explore your passion at graduateadmissions.wvu.edu. Welcome to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond, a podcast supported by West Virginia University's Provost's Office of Graduate Education and Life. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy Caronia, a teaching associate professor with the Department of English at WVU. Today, I'm excited to speak with Stephanie M. House Nyamke, a doctoral student with WVU Sociology Department, a W.E.B. Du Bois Fellow, and most recently the recipient of a WVU Distinguished Doctoral Scholarship. Her research interests concern power, access, and choice across the areas of race, gender, and religion. This includes anti-racist pedagogy and identity development for melanin-dominant communities and women who participate in religious institutions. She has guest lectured on critical race theory at Virginia Tech and American University and published numerous articles on the subject. She's also a lover of mystery novels. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie, for coming and talking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive right in. Uh, your research stands at the intersections of race, religious, and gender studies. Could you talk a little bit about why you chose WVU for your doctoral work and how your undergraduate and previous graduate experience with Radford University and Virginia Polytechnic Institute and, and State University prepared you for the work that you're doing today at WVU? Sure. Thank you so much for the question. Um, I'll start with Radford and Virginia Tech, and then I'll, I'll make my way back to, to West Virginia. Um, so I think I've always been interested in social change, um, especially for the African-American community. So just as a quick background, um, my father is a community organizer, um, and I've, I've, he's always been very um, intentional to make me aware of racial issues in the world. And then my mother, I consider her to be an accidental feminist. And so I think I learned a lot about gender dynamics from her and so that was kind of my lens going into college. And so outside of the classroom, you know, I spent a lot of time in clubs and organizations that were really focused on gendered issues and racial issues. Um, and so, but I think where Radford really comes into play in terms of how I got to WVU is that was my first job out of college as well. I worked for undergraduate admissions. And so- oh, wow. Right. And so one of the things that I noticed when I was working for admissions and I was recruiting students and working with them through the application process is that a lot of my black and brown students were very strong academically. Their GPAs are very high, but their test scores were typically on the lower end, which, as we know, typically presents a challenge for getting admitted into a university. And I just didn't feel like that pattern was a coincidence. And so that led me to Virginia Tech, where I wanted to learn a little bit more about holistic admissions practices, social policy on a college campus, some of those other pieces that really, I think, make uh, for a strong um, student body. And while I was there um, at Virginia Tech, I took some elective courses in critical race theory, feminist theory. Um, I took a course called the Black Women in the U.S. and then also a course on liberation and social movements. And, and the best way that I can kind of describe the 
the impact that those courses had on me has really just kind of ignited a fire in me because it exposed me to so many things I just really hadn't known before. Um, and so I, I just, I, I was introduced to womanism, womanist theology. Um, and in my feminist theory class, um, the professor had asked, you know, write up your, write your term paper, your final paper on a question that you've just really been, you know, had burning in the back of your mind. And so I, again, coming from, from where I am, racialized lens, a gendered lens. And then as I was getting into my early adulthood, I was developing a religious lens as well. And I really wanted to know more about the African-American community and our relation to the Black church and just our relationship to Christianity in general. And so, um, you know, I wrote a paper that really looked at the social position, positionality of Black women um, in the Black church. And I presented that at our Women's and Gender Studies Conference, got a lot of really great feedback for that paper. And I was like, wow, this was really exciting to present this work. And this was the first time I think I'd really written a paper that I was like, I was so excited about, you know, oftentimes the research process is very, you know, we kind of, you know, begrudge it. And so, <laughs> um, and so it was the first time that I didn't, you know, dislike the process. And I was like, how do I do more of this? And so some of those mentors from some of those courses that I'd mentioned earlier, were starting to kind of put the idea in my mind of a PhD program. But what they also were very clear about was make sure that you're clear on what you want to do and why you want to do it, because um, it's a difficult process. And so after I graduated from Virginia Tech, I took a few years. I still did kind of um, what you might call independent scholarship. And so I was still doing research on these particular areas, taking a class here or there. But I finally decided sociology seems to be the best fit for the question that I have. Um, and I started looking at, at institutions that had um, scholars who were doing religious um, work. And WVU has a significant number of faculty who are doing religion, um, specifically on congregations and victimization of, of minoritized populations within religious communities. Um, and it's been a really great decision. Um, I've had some really great mentorship. I've really enjoyed my experience so far here at WVU. That's great. What did you do? This is great that you took I wouldn't call it a gap year because you took a few years off. So right. while you were doing independent research, did you have a full-time job at the same time? What did you do while you were in between the master's and the PhD program? Because I'm sure that shaped you as well. Oh, for sure. Um, so I moved to the DMV or the DC, Maryland and Virginia area. And um, I worked the longest during that period of time at American University. And so I got an opportunity to do some adjuncting for undergraduate students. Um, and we were really talking a lot about social positionality. We were really talking a lot about um, how their individual identities um, played out in the world around them, especially in such a diverse area like D.C. Um, and for a lot of them, this was the first time they were having some of these conversations around race, gender, class, sexuality. Wow. Um, and so it really kind of opened my mind, too, in terms of what students were really interested in. Um, but I definitely think that that shaped me. Um, I also took a couple of courses um, on like Africana religion um, and some of the roots of some of that as well that still show up presently in the Black church as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's, and then you made the decision to come to WVU. And mm -hmm. while you're here, you're also, you're publishing and you're giving talks about critical race theory, which I think is, is so important right now with the conversations that want to sort of 
um, not talk about what critical race theory really is. Right. And, and so you really talk about how the interventions are important in understanding systemic racism, not only in education, but public administration, religious communities, and business and tech fields. So could you talk a little bit about your present research and how it builds on the work that you've already done and the experiences that you've already had? Absolutely, yes. Um, so my current research um, is considering the sociocultural effects of the white Jesus phenomenon on Black Protestant Christians. And so typically when I mention white Jesus, most people kind of, you know, cock their head at me and they're like, that's something that people are, you know, still asking questions about. Um, because I think in a lot of their minds, they're thinking, well, of course, Jesus wouldn't be European based on the area in which he lived and traveled. Um, and yet the image and the belief in that imagery still persists. And so that's where the question really um, kind of sets the foundation for, for my project. And so I, I think even further, um, given the history between black and white people in this country and the history of the transatlantic slave trade, we have to ask more specifically about the implications of that image on religious identity development and concept of self. Um, I think the ways that it that it builds on the other work that I've done so far is that it's taking an intersectional approach. So critical race theory um, in and of itself is talking about one particular paradigm, right, which is race. But the work that I'm doing now, I think, really builds on a more intersectional approach to, uh, to exploring how minoritized people are making meaning of their faith in the context of oppressive systems and in the context of oppressive of life. Um, and I think my work with critical race theory, um, my work with womanist theological frameworks have also considered how do these racialized and gender dynamics play out and impact those specifically who are experiencing oppression. So are you doing field research where you're talking to people in churches, to priests, as well as congregants? Yes. Um, so right now I'm actually in the middle of, of doing data collection. Um, send, me a, send me a good prayer, some, um, some good energy. Um, this is, it's an exciting part of the process, but it's also a bit nerve-wracking. Yes, <laughs> For sure. But um, but yeah, I am. I'm, I've been talking to different members um, and I've been talking to some pastors as well of, in church leadership, um, really focused on asking those questions. And so far, like they've really appreciated the opportunity to really talk about it. Um, and so I'm really excited to kind of put together all of the findings that I'm that I'm getting from my conversations with them. But it's been a really fun experience as well. That's great. And you yeah. had to do an IRB and all of that process. Correct. Yes. yes. Did it feel yes. difficult to do the IRB? Because I know some grad students mm -hmm. have to do IRB. So what was that process like of figuring out how to get the right information for your IRB? Right. Um, so I, I will say this again and again. Um, my advisor's name is Katie Corcoran, and she's amazing. Um, she's been really helpful in mentorship. I will also say that um, during my master's program, I, I had some experience with designing a research project, and I'd gone through some portion of the IRB, um, even though I didn't finish the project at Virginia Tech. Um, and so I do think that having that experience along with Dr. Corcoran's mentorship has been really helpful. Um, it wasn't a super complicated process. Um, I'm lucky in that regard because I do know a lot of my counterparts who, you know, months and months and months go by and they're still going back and forth with trying to figure out how to best design their research um, in a way that IRB finds to be, you know, um, beneficent, so to speak. And um, it's, it's a challenge for sure. But I, I will say that I was lucky enough that um, that it was a pretty quick process for me. 
it sounds like all your previous experience helped you with that. And then having a great mm-hmm. mentor as well helped you with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So along those lines, right, you've published or have under review quite a few articles and you've done more than a dozen conference presentations. And I, But I noticed that many, much of what you've done is co-authored or collaborative work, right? Mm-hmm. So what would you say is the best thing about collaborating with mentors, peers, and faculty in general? Right. Um, I, I, when I think about my mentors and when I think about working with faculty, there's just always so much to learn. You know, um, I really marvel at the process that my mentors um, and faculty have for research and publication. Uh, I think the first paper that I worked on, actually the summer before I got to WVU, I worked with Dr. Corcoran um, before she was officially my advisor. And it maybe took her a week or a weekend to kind of draft up, you know, most of the article that we had been working on. I mean, like 30 pages. And I was like, what kind of witchcraft is this? Like, I must learn. (laughs) I must learn, you know, your techniques, like, you know, teach me this process. And, um, you know, I think she was really open to talking with me, like, here's my process. And also some of that is just coming from experience of doing research on a regular basis, right? So I will get there one day. Um, But I I really appreciated that because I think she's been really open to doing so. Um, Dr. Scheidel that I've worked with on a paper as well, similar, you know, in that they're always very open to talking through their own process and helping you with any any way that their process could potentially help you. And so I just think, you know, if you're working with the right folks, they want to teach you, they want to help you, they want to see you succeed. And so I think that's probably been one of the best things about working with mentors and faculty. In terms of working with peers, um, I think it's really a case of iron sharpening iron. Um, So we're all in this process together, you know, getting better, learning more and more. Um, But you do, you get better at at writing and research. You know, I think it builds confidence to navigate the publication process, um, which can also be kind of nerve wracking from time to time too. Um, But you're doing so with someone who's a novice like you are. Um, And so I think that's always encouraging. And then I think too, in some odd ways, you really build community in some different ways. And I think you just strengthen each other along the way with the process. Um, But, you know, I know that there's a lot of fear around asking faculty to do work with you or to collaborate on a project with you. Or if they ask you, you know, there's some fear about, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to be able to do this? Um, And I just still encourage people like reach out. If there's a project that you really want to work on with a faculty member, reach out. Um, They really get excited about it. Oftentimes, I don't think I've ever had anyone flat out just say, no, I don't want to work with you. Um, If I ever got no, it was more so about kind of the timing of, of that, that particular peer um, and where they were in their program. Um, or it was with a faculty member who was like, I just have a lot on my plate right now. Let's kind of table this until next semester or at another time in the year. Um, but I think it still builds the relationships. And so I think it's worth the risk. So I, I encourage everybody to definitely do it. So you're talking about uh, a community that's not competitive but instead is rooting for each other. Right. Um, So how do you feel that you contribute to building that amongst your peers, other amongst other graduate students? It sounds like you're really good at that, but, but what are some tips that you would have for other graduate students that either feel shy or don't feel like they have the cultural capital to step into that kind of shoes? Um, What tips do you have? 
Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, you know, identifying someone or, or a couple of people. Um, and I think if you're more on the shy side, maybe what that starts with is just building a relationship with that faculty member or with that peer, you know, let's go grab coffee, let's grab lunch. Um, you know, we're able to do a little bit more of that now than we were a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. So maybe it starts there. And then as you build your comfort with that particular faculty member or with that um, peer, then you start to think about, hey, you know, I've been really interested in this project or this, in this idea, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And then you kind of start and hopefully an organic um, process happens from that or, or starts from that. Um, oftentimes faculty are very excited to talk about their research, are very excited to, to share whatever they can with students. And so sometimes the tip or the trick is getting them to talk about their research. And when you get them really excited about something and then you bring up, hey, I've had this idea, seems like this is something that's very much in your wheelhouse, oftentimes the ball will kind of get rolling naturally on its own. Um, and so I think that's probably the first thing that I could, could name to it. Um, I do think that the cultural capital is so critical um, because, you know, I'm a first generation PhD student. And so there's a lot of this that exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so there's a lot of things that you just don't know coming in. Um, but I think if you take the position of asking the question and just saying, hey, I don't know, can you help me? Oftentimes people are very much willing to help you. Um, that's not always the case, of course, um, but I think that a lot of times and, and more often than not, they are. Um, and then the last tip is um, if you already have an advisor um, in your program, so whether that's one that you've chosen because of your, your project topic or the one that's kind of assigned to you when you first enter into your program, talking with them about how do I approach this particular faculty member or what do you suggest um, I do if I want to work with my classmate here? Um, and then also, I think there are oftentimes a lot in classes where they ask you to do some collaborative work. And so maybe you can be strategic in identifying that other student that you really want to work on a project with. And then that also can kind of get the ball rolling in terms of you all working together. Wow, those are great tips. Thank you for sharing all of that. Let's take a break for a moment to hear from WVU's Provost's Office of Graduate Education and Life. The Hazel Ruby McQuain Graduate Scholarship provides recipients with financial support for graduate study. More information about eligibility, benefits, and the application process can be found at graduateeducation.wvu.edu. Applications are due March 28th. Welcome back to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy Caronia, and I'm speaking with Stephanie House-Miamke about her work in race, gender, and religion. So Stephanie, let's, um, let's move the conversation a little bit. I'd like to talk to you about what you would say to educators today who are worried about their ability to teach subjects focused on gender, race, and minoritized communities in an accurate or, or authentic manner. Wow. Um, it's a big question, I know. That is, <laughs> that is a big question. Um, let me take a moment. Um, I think I, I, I do feel like there's a lot that I, that I would like to say. I think first, um, reading as much as you can about the topic that you, or the topics that you're going into the classroom to teach. Um, attend conferences, watch TED Talks, do everything that you can in your power to go into the classroom informed. 
things are going to change around these topics and evolve rather quickly, but nonetheless, do the best that you can to, to understand the concepts that you're going to be teaching. Um, the caveat here, and I want to be clear to say this as well, is that we do have to acknowledge that we live in a world where misinformation is rampant. And we have to be very mindful of the sources that we're using to gather information and to gain knowledge about a particular topic. But once you kind of find your credible sources, first and foremost, read as much as you absolutely can. Um, second, I, I think one of the things that has helped me the most is going into the classroom and just naming to students, I don't know everything. You know, I, I have a certain level of expertise well enough that they said I could teach this course at the same time. I'm expecting that you all will teach me just as much as I'm teaching you. Um, and if you have a question, like I don't want you to hold back with the question, but it may be a case of I'll have to kind of go back, do some research on my own and then come back to you with an answer. Um, so much of that, I think, lessens the pressure on you as the instructor and lessens the pressure on the students, right? Because it's, it's more of a collaborative space in general. Um, but I think when you do that too, and when you take that attitude, it makes teaching more fun. And I think it makes teaching more enjoyable for you as well as for the students. Um, uh, I think more specifically for my minoritized instructors, some advice I might give um, again, is, is really putting out in the, in the front of the classroom and naming kind of on day one or week one of the course is you have these identities and they're going to impact how you show up in the classroom and how you teach this material. As a black woman, if I'm teaching you about racism and about sexism, I'm teaching you about topics that directly affect me. Um, and so that is not a hindrance to my ability to teach the course or teach the material, but it is an element in the room and it does, um, it may change how the students receive the information from me. Um, and I also sometimes, depending on how comfortable I'm feeling with, with the energy in the room, I will say, if I had different identities, the way that this material might be received by you may be different than if than with the identities that I'm currently carrying. So if I identified as a white man, you might receive this information differently than as I'm presenting it as a black woman. Um, that's not necessarily wrong, let's just name it. Um, and I think that once we kind of get that out of the way, then we can really start to do the work that, that we're there to do. Um, for instructors that um, have more dominant identities, I think you can use that same tactic of naming your lived experience and how it's going to show up and how you understand the material, how you might present the material, how you're interpreting the material. Um, and I think in this case, it's important to, to say to your students, hey, I have done as much research as I can. I understand that this may not necessarily affect me in ways that it might affect other communities. You know, I am asking for some form of accountability from y'all, as well as I'm going to do my best to keep myself accountable to do topic, you know, to do this topic justice. Um, and in the event that um, you don't feel like you can can do that topic justice, I think it's OK to invite other scholars or other thinkers into the space um, who can do that topic justice. But I think there's a certain level of honesty and transparency, that authenticity with self that really is critical to, um, to being able to make that decision. Now, that said, um, I think you can also be very clear in understanding that just because you're inviting scholars or thinkers does not evade your responsibility as the instructor of that classroom. 
And you don't also, if you take the approach of inviting your students to take up more space on those topics that you don't feel quite as confident or, or that you have as much expertise in, that also doesn't mean that you exploit your students for their lived experience and their knowledge. And so there's a really interesting balance that you have to find around, I wanna be respectful here, I want to do this topic justice, but also I know that I'm not in the space to do that. And so I do wanna employ some other tactics and tools and potentially some other people to help me with that. But again, I think if you're just kind of honest about um, you know, your own capacity with that, I think that's really critical, especially if we really believe that our students are supposed to be the biggest beneficiary of our presence in the classroom. And so we just have to be really transparent and honest about that. And sometimes that means that everybody can't teach everything um, and sometimes that means that we have to leave that to those with stronger expertise until um, we have skilled up enough to do it justice for our students. Wow. That's a very layered answer. And there are so many, <laughs> there's so much I want to add to what you're saying, particularly around the very, at the very beginning, you talked about credible sources. Mm -hmm. and for instance, one of the things that I've started to do whenever I give students a piece of literature to read now or a piece of theory to read, I give them the author's name, I give them the author's background, I tell yeah. them what else the author has read, what else they've written. And five years ago, six years ago, I didn't do that. But now mm. I show them the trail of why this person, why I chose to bring this person's words into the classroom and to right. share it with them as we're having a discussion, say around immigration in a piece right. of literature that I'm teaching. Um, right. And so what are some of the things that you would do as your students are writing, say, um, and they don't know how, I mean, we are saturated with media and information, yet that doesn't mean that anybody understands how to look for credible sources. So right. what are some tips that you give to your students when they're doing conducting research maybe and need to find their own sources and they'll right. come back with you know, something from the web, a .com site that you, all you do is two clicks and you find out that it all falls apart. Right, exactly. And I think that's probably the first thing that I say is um, do some background to how, so, so oftentimes those articles, even like on Wikipedia, which I think can be very helpful and can be a great introduction yes. to a really, you know, complex um, set of, of material or, or concepts. Um, click on some of those reference links Right. And so if you are if you're seeing that the first that Article A leads to Article B and then Article B leads back to Article A, you should start to ask some questions about its credibility. Right. Because there's not a deeper trail of where that information is coming from. Um, start to to use. I mean, this generation is so good at Googling. Right. And, <laughs> and finding all the keywords. And so I really I'm like, I'm use those same skills that you do for urban dictionary and those kinds of things to also focus on, okay, if you're going to search Audrey Lord, you know, where can you find her in a myriad of places, right? You can find her on the internet. You can find some, some quotes from her and those kinds of things, but also go to your library, right? Let me walk you through and let me talk you through, excuse me, how to find this information in the library, right, that has, um, I think, done a phenomenal job, and I would say this about most libraries in the U.S., done a really great job of helping you identify, and they've started already to filter out the credit, like the, the 
the not credible sources for you. Um, and so I think that's a really great way as well. Um, but I think too, and, and this generation might not necessarily appreciate this note quite so much, but this idea that some of the ideas that we're seeing are new. Um, so if somebody, you know, 2015 and, and later are saying, hey, this is a brand new concept. It's never been done before. You should also be skeptical of that because a lot of these thinkers and a lot of these thoughts and a lot of these concepts about how to deal with and understand these social issues have been in circulation for some time, right? Audre Lorde was writing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? So this idea of intersectionality is not necessarily new, right? Kimberly Crenshaw was writing about this in 1989, right? So, <laughs> so we've got to be really mindful about giving people the credit and doing some of that work to say, okay, this, this concept can't be, you know, so novel and so new. Now, maybe we're using it in novel and new ways, but we have to also do a little bit more research to find out, okay, this has to have older roots than just 2015 or just 2018. Thanks for saying that. I do that all the time. I teach um, literature and composition and in composition, mm -hmm. Audre Lorde is one of my go-tos when I want to talk mm -hmm. about, well, how do you do, how can you be, a creative person, also an intellectual thinker, mm -hmm. and how do you radicalize your discourse? Because yes. she was she was talking about intersectionality and the hierarchy of oppression yes. back in the 70s and exactly. taking and taking white women to task at women in yes. studies conferences for saying, don't tokenize me. And I've always right. admired her strength of purpose in that to say, mm -hmm. I'm going to, what you were talking about before about naming what's going on, not to be mm -hmm. accusatory, but just mm -hmm. to say, I, we need to name this because otherwise we can't, we, we can't have a conversation. Absolutely. We can't move forward. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, as I'm listening to you talk, you seem like a natural teacher. Um, mm -hmm. What do you plan on doing once you finish your PhD? You know, where, what are your career goals and, and where do you see yourself five years from now? That is a good question. So I, I do want to teach. Um, I definitely love teaching college students. I think the adjuncting experience that I got before coming to WVU and some of the co-teaching experience that I got at Virginia Tech really showed me like, oh, I love this, you know, and I love having those aha moments with my students. And um, uh, because of my fellowship right now, though I'm super grateful for the opportunity, it doesn't really put me in the classroom with students um, the way a traditional um TA position would. And so I do miss that experience. So yes, I think, um, you know, I would love to be teaching. Um, I think also going forward, maybe the next five years, I'd like to be in like a tenure track um, position somewhere at a university. I'd like to be partnered. Um, and I really want to take my parents to Wimbledon. Um, I know that that is something that uh, my mom has always really wanted to do. And so I really want to be able to do that for them in the next few years. And now that hopefully we're moving through this pandemic, it's that could be a reality, not just a, a dream of will we ever be allowed outside again and with other no. people? <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So what's been your favorite part of graduate school at WVU? What would you say is the favorite thing that you get to do while you're here? Wow. Um, I think it's, I think... The opportunity in general, just to sit with your ideas and your thoughts and just have that time isolated to explore 
these different things. And, and for a lot of us, we're considering these in the context of how we help communities that, that we live in and that we're a part of, I think is one of the things that's most meaningful to me about the graduate school experience. Um, on a lighter note, I think the ability to, to wear sweatpants all the time is a beautiful. <laughs> I like being able to attend class in a hoodie and sweats. Um, because I'm clear that once I get to that tenure track position, that is not going to be what I'm going to be able to do. <laughs> and so I'm taking full advantage right now. So, yes. Soft pants during the pandemic have been my go-to. <laughs> yes. Yes. For sure. So I want to talk before we before we end our conversation. You have you love mysteries. You love mysteries. And as a professor in the English department, I'm always curious <laughs> about what people are reading. So what's your favorite mystery series? Oh wow. I don't know if you have a favorite mystery series or but you might. So I thought I would ask. Yeah, no, so I have two. It's hard for me to choose one. Um, so uh, my former supervisor, when I was working at American, introduced me to Louise Penny's um, novels. They're all um, like French Canadian um, mystery novels, and they have, they star the detective Armand Gamache. And I just really love those novels. Um, they're so powerful. I just, I love them so much. Um, and then, other, then also um, Michael Connolly's series um, around Harry Bosch and The Lincoln Lawyer um, are probably my two favorite series. <laughs> so I love Bosch. Have you watched the television show that goes with? Not yet. Um, oh. I'm going to try to do that this summer, though. That's the goal. The actor that plays the lead is such an interesting sort of grim looking. Mm. He just dives into the really nasty parts of what Bosch has to look at. So he's fascinating to me. In oh, wow. Yeah. I'll definitely have to touch base with you again once I start yes. <laughs> watching. <laughs> Please. For sure. So Definitely. what drew, what, you know, with the work that you do, what drew you to mysteries? You know, if that, if that's your go-to. Um, I think I'm, I'm a very curious person. And so I'm always the person that's looking below the surface, that I'm looking below what meets the eye. And so mysteries are, are a way to do that in the form of a book um, where the entire book is around trying to figure out what this thing is. And so you're collecting all of this data essentially to figure out who was the killer or, you know, who stole the bag or whatever it is. And it's just really like, I mean, it just keeps your mind going. And I just love it. Um, you know, cause if I'm up at 2am then I can be thinking about that. <laughs> and it's different than like police procedurals, which are very formulaic. Yes. Mysteries right. have that sense of there's a formula, but they can always upend the formula depending right. on what the author's interests are, the topic mm -hmm. or the themes that are going on. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for talking with me today, Stephanie. This has been a great conversation. You're doing such important work and I appreciate you taking time out from your schedule to chat with me today. So thank you again. Thank you so much. It's been a really great honor. Thank you to Grad Life 601's podcast audience. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join in next time to Grad Life 601 Research and Beyond, when I'll be speaking with Joshua H. Carr, a service assistant professor for the WVU Center for Excellence in STEM Education and a PhD candidate in educational theory and practice with WVU's College of Education and Human Services. Until next time, 
I'm Dr. Nancy Caronia with GradLife 601.